This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Daily Show, Radio Free Oz, The Rachel Maddow Show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, The Young Turks, and The Colbert Report with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Daily Show. But our main story, obviously, tonight, the ongoing race for the White House. And on the Republican side, things are trending in one direction, my friends. Boom! Polls show that Mitt Romney is leading the GOP field for 2012. He's ahead in the polls. He's way ahead in the money. He's got a much stronger organization. He's got the name recognition. Wow, Mitt Romney's uh, the one the Republicans are taking to the big dance. Are there any drawbacks? Well, it's hard to get excited about uh, Mitt Romney. If the election were tomorrow, um, I, it would probably be Mitt Romney. But... That's that's only because of there's of the lack of choice. Wow. <laughs> Republicans nervous about nominating the Mormon ex-governor with perceived softness on social issues. They'll do it, but with the same enthusiasm as say someone taking their cousin to the prom. <laughs> it's better than nothing. You might still get laid, but you're not going to feel that great about it. What? No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said it. I'm sorry. Judgmental. <laughs> All right, clearly Republicans are looking for an option. What else we got? John Huntsman makes his entrance in the Republican presidential race. Is he likely to become the sort of anti-Romney candidate for the Republicans? The anti-Romney. <laughs> He's a handsome Mormon ex-governor with perceived softness on social issues. <laughs> He's not the anti-Romney. He's the candidate for people who would vote for Romney but are concerned Romney has too much name recognition. <laughs> Come on, people, give me somebody truly different. I personally think Michelle Bachman, your colleague, is going to be a real challenger to Mitt Romney. There you go, Michelle Bachman, perfect. Her and Mitt couldn't be more different. He's a man, she's a lady, he's tall, she's short. He looks directly into the camera, she looks just to the right of it. <laughs> And her campaign got off to a running start when she declared her candidacy in her birthplace of Waterloo, Iowa. But what I want them to know is, just like John Wayne was from Waterloo, Iowa, that's the kind of spirit that I have, too. It looks like she got her John Wayne's confused. John Wayne, the acting legend, is actually from Winterset, Iowa. It's about 150 miles away from Waterloo. Serial killer John Wayne Gacy, who uh, raped and killed 33 men and boys, did live in Waterloo before his killing spree began. How do you know she got her John Wayne's confused? Maybe she was like, yo, I'm from Waterloo, serial killer, straight up. <laughs> Just got implants. Still, nice going, Michelle Bakken. I'm sure she endeared herself to her hometown. I believe the Waterloo Chamber of Commerce sent her a thank you card. Yeah, all right. So she mixed up some names. She's not out there screwing up important stuff like, you know, the era of history on which she bases her entire philosophy of government. 
You said that the founding fathers who wrote the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence worked tirelessly to end slavery. Now, with respect, uh, Congresswoman, that's just not true. Well, if you look at one of our founding fathers, John Quincy Adams, that's absolutely true. He was a very young boy when he was with his father, serving essentially as, as his father's secretary. He tirelessly worked throughout his life to make sure that we did, in fact, one day eradicate slavery he, he from our nation. He wasn't one of the founding and fathers. So, well, John Quincy Adams most certainly was a part of the Revolutionary War era. He was a young boy, but he was actively involved. Right, but he wasn't a founding father is what the... I mean, he was nine at the time. <laughs> if he had signed the Declaration of Independence, this is what it would have looked like. It, uh, it, it, was, it was a kid. You know what? I give Michelle Bachman credit. She actually made a non-Fox appearance, unlike other non-Romney Republican options. <laughs> Palin, of course, was also coincidentally in Iowa, as she was coincidentally in New Hampshire when Romney declared. Speaking of whom, why was Palin in Iowa? Sarah Palin is in Iowa tonight to attend a movie premiere. But it's not just any movie. The film is called The Undefeated, and it offers a positive portrait of her life and career. Okay, two things. First, the documentary about the losing vice presidential candidate in the 2008 election is called The Undefeated. You don't fact check the title of your documentary. And second, you're clearly running for president. What we say on the fishing boat stays on the fishing boat. You don't need to be announcing anything. What? Yes, why announce? It would ruin this delicious will she or won't she tension. And we all know that's what killed moonlighting. Look, <laughs> Governor Palin, I really hope you're running for president. Because if you're not, if you're just riding around in a giant bus with your name on it to catch caucus state premieres of a documentary about yourself, that's freaky. That mean you're like a chimp in a Ferris wheel from Michael Jackson territory. I'm not apologizing. No, I'm not apologizing for that. I think if she's not running for president, it's a weird thing to do. Oh, fine. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, I think I may have isolated the Republicans' problem. It's not that Republicans have too few candidates. It's that the candidates they do have are doppelgangers. They have the handsome middle-aged Mormon twins. They have the American history challenged hotness. They have conservative firebrands from Georgia and, of course, a pair of oak trees. So. Only one of them can be the nominee, and aside from Palenti, I think they've all got a pretty decent shot. GOP. Tim Pawlenty fooled me big time. I had him clocked as the Sage of Beige, a typical Midwestern matzoponen, Yiddish for a face with all the sizzle of a sheet of matzah. I was certain that he was more vanilla than killa, but that was before he decided to kiss up big time to the Tea Party. 
Remember, Timmy was a tree-hugging, tax-raising governor of Minnesota, a giant no-no among the wingnut fringe that has corrupted the heart and soul of the former party of Lincoln, T.R., and Ike. So, what does Teapaw do to make his right-wing bones? He comes up with a plan that makes Paul Ryan look positively Keynesian. Candidate Polenti proposes to reduce the top individual tax rate from 35% to 25%, cut the top corporate tax rate from 25% to 15%, and do away entirely with the state taxes and taxes on capital gains, dividends, and interest. According to the Tax Policy Center, Tim's path to plutocracy will cost the Treasury $11 billion over the next 10 years. And he's being taken seriously. The GOP is so hooked on the Koch bros that all the natterings of Nobel economists, Wall Street wizards, and other grounded-in-reality professionals go in one ear and out the other. No surprise, since there's precious little inside to stop them. With Teapaw going postal, Mitt Romney is all that remains of political practicality among the other garden gnomes going for the gold. Herman Cain can deliver pizza and little more. Michelle Bachman is a shrill, unfunny joke. Ron Paul is a child only Ayn Rand could love. Rick Santorum is a non-starter in his own state. And Newt Gingrich is staring down the muzzle of his own loose cannon. Considering the precarious state of their present lineup, I offer the GOP a workable plan B. Don't run anyone in 2012. Concede the election to Obama and spend your time and money on retaining your majority in the House and taking the Senate. Without the burden of a no coattails candidate, it just might work. Oh, for the sake of momentum, I've allowed my fears to get larger than Hi, I'm Sam Cedar. You may know me from my shows on Air America Radio, from filling in for Keith Olbermann on Countdown, or even, God forbid, my directing shows like Comedy Central's I'm With Busey. If not, you should really get to know me. Not personally, of course. I think we'd both find that uncomfortable. But if you're a fan of the best of the left like me, I think you'll enjoy my daily live show and podcast, The Majority Report, at Majority.fm. It's a daily dose of political news, analysis, and guests like Chris Hayes, Robert Reich, Digby, comedians like Mark Marin, Janine Garofalo, filmmakers like Morgan Spurlock and Lucy Walker, and on occasion, between my rants on raising taxes, ending wars, and decorporatizing our democracy, I can be mildly amusing. I'm unbought and unbossed daily on the Majority Report at Majority.fm. When President Obama was traveling through Europe last month, what was happening back home in Washington uh, was a dramatic, down-to-the-wire, last-minute decision by Congress. It was a last-minute decision to pass a reauthorization of the Patriot Act. The Patriot Act, of course, the controversial bye-bye Fourth Amendment, post-9-11, omnibus national security powers expansion that was first passed during the Bush administration right after 9-11. That law has some sunset provisions in it. Certain parts of it expire unless Congress affirmatively extends them. Congress almost did not extend those sunsetting portions of the Patriot Act, but at the very last minute, they did pass the extension, and they sent the extension to President Obama's desk. President Obama's desk, however 
was empty. He was not there. He was in Europe at the time. He was in France, to be specific. And since this was a time-sensitive matter, the White House did not have many options. They put out this, not exactly Orwellian, but sort of scary, futuristic-sounding statement. Failure to sign this legislation poses a significant risk to U.S. national security. The president will, therefore, direct the use of the auto pen to sign it. Auto pen. Uh, the auto pen uh, isn't Austrian. Uh, it is a robotic signature device that puts a mechanical reproduction of the president's actual signature on a document. Use of the auto pen uh, must be directed directly by the president. Um, although that happened, the auto pen thing happened three weeks ago, now 21 members of Congress are asking President Obama to re-sign the Patriot Act without the auto pen, uh, with just an actual pen in his hand. The only other time the auto pen has ever really made national news was when it was revealed during the George W. Bush administration that Mr. Bush's defense secretary, Donald Rumsfeld, was using the auto pen to sign letters of condolence to the families of soldiers killed in Iraq and Afghanistan, which is probably why the syllables auto pen make lots of people feel like they want to throw up even if they can't remember why. But another sort of sleeper story in today's news. Um, at one point this afternoon, had our show investigating today whether or not auto pens are ever used at the state level, whether or not they are ever used by governors. The reason we wanted to know is because as of this morning, there were 1,170 bills sitting on Rick Perry's desk in Texas. The deadline for those bills to be acted upon, for them to be made law or vetoed, is Sunday. That's the deadline. 1,170 bills. The Texas legislature meets roughly once in a blue moon. This is all the work they have done during the last session. And Rick Perry has to do one thing or another with these 1,170 bills by Sunday. Unfortunately for the Texas legislature, Rick Perry has been very busy lately and not in Texas. On Tuesday of this week, he was here in New York City. Governor Perry stopped in at our neighbors across the street to give an interview uh, to a gentleman named Neil Cavuto, who's one of the Fox News Channel hosts. He then gave a rousing speech on Tuesday night to the New York City Republican Party's annual Lincoln Dinner. On Wednesday, he had a private lunch with former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani, the kind of private lunch that gets a press release. He also made a stop in North Carolina on Wednesday for the meeting of the Republican Governors Association. Governor Perry finally returned to Texas yesterday, but tomorrow he's back on the road. Uh, he's going to New Orleans. Remember, 1,170 bills on his desk. The deadline is Sunday. But tomorrow he is due to be busy out of state again. Uh, look at this. This is the website for the Republican Leadership Conference, uh, which is held every year uh, and every presidential primary year. It becomes the showcase for people who are running for president. Sure enough, the people speaking at the Republican Leadership Conference this year include Newt Gingrich and Michelle Bachman and Ron Paul and Rick Santorum, even John Huntsman, uh, due to announce his candidacy on Tuesday. John Huntsman apparently got a bad cold and felt like he could not travel to make his speech at this event, but he still reportedly sent his wife and daughters uh, not to give a speech there, but just to sit there and be Huntsman's, because it is that important. You think that the Republican Leadership Conference would have something to brag about with all that, right? They'd be bragging about all the presidential candidates who they've got speaking at their event. Just today, they had Michelle Bachman and Rick Santorum speaking on the same day. But even on the day those two declared candidates were speaking, the Republican Leadership Conference put up on the front page of their website, on their event website, 
The guy who was supposedly not a presidential candidate who is not speaking until tomorrow. That's got a sting. But Rick Perry is clearly enjoying this. Did I mention that there are 1,170 bills on his desk in need of his attention by Sunday? Governor Perry's spokesman, a man named Mike Miner, explained what the governor is doing by telling reporters that the governor's priority is on the Texas legislature. And no, we were never able to figure out if Texas has an auto pen. But here's the deal um, with Republicans running for president this year. There are all these people um, who are very interesting as candidates in their own right. Ron Paul uh, is always interesting, his particular brand of libertarianism uh, and his wide following among not traditionally Republican constituencies. Herman Cain is a very interesting candidate this year, uh, definitely a real crowd pleaser, if nothing else. Michelle Bachman is interesting. She has been, frankly, she has been a sideshow of a Republican politician for her career in Congress. But she is trying to mount what looks like a very mainstream and probably well-funded campaign. John Huntsman is interesting, uh, not just because of the head cold family travel issue, but because of his so, so far quite strange advertisements, hiring the I am not a witch guy and then running his own surreal non sequitur I am not a wizard ads. Also, the fact that he is getting into this race so late, he's just been kind of interesting. Uh, Newt Gingrich has been interesting as well, sadly, in sort of a schadenfreude way. After hinting at running for president for a decade so as to make money off seeming important enough to maybe run for president, after a decade of building up to it, Mr. Gingrich's first real step over the threshold was right onto a rake. Also, uh, Rick Santorum's running. I should never say it that way, I'm sorry. And although maybe the top tier uh, maybe uh, may eventually include John Huntsman, uh, John Huntsman technically isn't in yet. So the real cast of credible contenders, sort of top tier contenders, at this point is only Tim Pawlenty and Mitt Romney. Tim Pawlenty, I think, sort of being considered a credible candidate, mostly on reputation at this point. As we talked about on last night's show, Mr. Pawlenty has yet to get out of double digits in any recent poll. He's been campaigning his heart out. So far, that has only earned him 5% in New Hampshire. That's a new poll. That's up from his last poll in New Hampshire. He's behind Rudy Giuliani, who is not running, and behind Sarah Palin, who is not running. He's only one point ahead of Herman Cain. He is polling at half of Michelle Bachman. And this is not in Iowa. This is in New Hampshire. For whatever reason, things are just not connecting for Tim Pawlenty. As Chris Hayes said on this show last night, there does not appear to be any palmentum. So that really leaves as the only candidate in the top tier, Mitt Romney. And while everybody concedes that Mr. Romney is the frontrunner, the widespread and admitted dislike of him among the Republican political class, among people who ran alongside him in 08, among people who know him, it may be driving the common wisdom now that the Republican field is kind of a hold-your-nose situation. Mitt Romney may be in the lead, but there aren't very many people who are very happy about that. And so there is still this hunting for someone else to please get in. That means Bob Dole literally floated General David Petraeus's name again this week. That means South Carolina Republicans have formed a tiny altar to Chris Christie and have worshipped it in front of invited cameras. It means Rick Perry also. Rick Perry. Apparently forgetting about 1,170 pieces of legislation that he has to do something about before Sunday while he travels around the country lapping up the attention. Nobody knows if Rick Perry is going to get in or not. When he traveled uh, to New York this week, he traveled with his longtime political advisor, who's one of the people who just quit Newt Gingrich's campaign. So that might be a sign that Mr. Perry is running. 
Venerable Texas political reporter Wayne Slater reported on our air last week that Rick Perry's family is urging him to run. And for a lot of candidates, that's a very important factor. We, we just don't know yet whether or not he is going to run. He hasn't made an announcement. He has not announced that he's going to schedule an announcement of an announcement. But, but whether or not he ultimately joins the race, there is one thing to understand about the case that Rick Perry will make and the case that Rick Perry's supporters will make for why he would make a good candidate and why, by extension, he would make a good president. There's one thing to understand about the case for Rick Perry that is being made so far and that it looks like will be the basis for his presidential run. One thing to understand about that. It's um, baloney. You know, proud to be a, a Texan, I'm proud to be a conservative. Uh, not just because I'm from Texas, because the because conservatives have won the war of ideals. See, in Texas, you don't have to use your imagination and go, well, what do you think if we tried this conservative principle over here? We've been doing it. We've been doing it, and it's been paying great dividends in our state. Great dividends. This is the case for Rick Perry for president. The Wall Street Journal lead editorial last week was titled The Lone Star Job Surge. Everybody from the Wall Street Journal editorial page to the National Review to everybody else who is encouraging Rick Perry to run is making this case that Texas has this awesome economy. Yes, the national economy may be in bad shape, but Texas has an awesome economy thanks to Rick Perry's 10 years in charge there. After Rick Perry's 10 years in charge in Texas, Texas is a lot of things. But a place where economically everything has worked out awesome? Baloney. Look at the unemployment situation in Texas right now. Texas is in the middle of the pack in the country in terms of its unemployment rate. 23 states across the country have a lower unemployment rate than Texas does. And that stubborn unemployment rate in the Lone Star State has been going up as the rest of the countries has recently been coming down. And from the recession until now, wages in the country have gone up 5%. In Texas, they've gone up 0.6%. In California, since the recession, wages have gone up 9.3%. In New York, it was 2.5%. Again, nationally, it was 5%. In Texas, it was 0.6%. In terms of the jobs that Texans do have, Texas has the highest proportion in the country of people making minimum wage and the highest number of people earning minimum wage of anywhere in the country. Nationally, in median terms, American workers are making twelve fifty per hour. That's the median wage nationally. In Texas, the median wage is eleven twenty per hour. And by the way, you don't have health insurance. Texas has the highest proportion of uninsured people in the entire country. More than one in four Texans do not have health insurance. That's the worst of anywhere in the country. And in the face of that, Governor Perry wants to opt out of Medicaid, which is the way you are supposed to get insurance if you are disabled or poor. And the Texas legislature, with Governor Perry's support, just passed a bill to kill Medicare. What Paul Ryan wants to do at the national level, Rick Perry and Texas Republicans are trying to do at the state level. They are trying to privatize Medicare and thereby get rid of it. So in Texas, the unemployment rate's been going up. It has the most people in the country who are making only minimum wage. People overall are making less money than the rest of the country. You are more likely in Texas to have no health insurance than anywhere else in the country. And Rick Perry is working double time to make that even worse. And as Rick Perry travels around to all of these we love you Rick Perry dinners, he keeps talking about how the federal government can really learn a thing two about the economy from a place like Texas. Texas right now has the fourth worst budget deficit in the country. That's the fiscal discipline, the conservative principles that Rick Perry has been bragging on. The fourth worst 
budget deficit in the country at the state level. The only states that have a worse budget deficit are California, New Jersey, and New York. I know what you're thinking. Come on. Come on. Texas is such a huge state. It has such a huge economy. Put it in context, Matto. Be fair. Okay. As a percentage of the state's budget, rather than just in absolute terms, as a percentage of the state's budget, Texas has the fifth worst budget shortfall in the country. But the single most important thing to know about Rick Perry, the thing that motivated us to go out in a giant hailstorm today to buy this enormous baloney, uh, is this. On the same day that Governor Perry asked for stimulus funds, he set up a petition online titled, No Government Bailouts. He wrote on his Rick Perry blog, join our fight and add your voice to a growing list of several thousand Americans who are fed up with this irresponsible spending that threatens our future. That was on the day he endorsed the federal check for $6.4 billion in stimulus money that he was screaming from the rooftops he would never accept. The same day, join our fight, the day that he's accepting the money. Rick Perry had previously advocated that Texas reject the stimulus money because he said, we can take care of ourselves. In 2009, Rick Perry screamed from the rooftops that he would not accept stimulus money. He then took the stimulus money, and that was the money that filled in 97% of Texas's budget shortfall that year. We've been balancing our budget in Texas. Oh, really? According to the National Conference on State Legislatures, no state was more dependent on stimulus funds than Texas under Rick Perry. Maybe Rick Perry will be the Republican antidote to the Mitt Romney front-runner blues. But the case for Rick Perry is going to have to be something other than the awesome, conservative, no-federal-money Rick Perry economy of Texas. I know it's not a story about a guy named Wiener, but it's just as much baloney. By all counts, Governor Perry has many charming qualities. They are going to have to pick something else for him to run on. The good news for Texans in all this, though, is that after headlines like this, look at this, ran in the Houston Chronicle today, Perry flirts with White House run as bills pile up. After that ran in the Houston Chronicle today, the governor finally did make it back to his office today to stop flirting with the presidency long enough to actually sign some of those 1,170 bills, which have just been sitting there waiting for the governor to come back home. Must I always be Must I always be playing, playing a fool? I sang your songs, I danced your dance, I gave your friends all a chance. Putting up with them wasn't worth never having you. Or maybe you've been through this before, but it's my first time, so please ignore the next few lines, cause they're directed at you. I can't always. Definitely more lively than Mitt Romney and has nicer hair, too. That was an Iowa voter who was very impressed with a candidate now rising in the GOP polls this week. Who? Uh, that is Michelle Bachman. Michelle Bachman, yes, very good. Yes. Ms. Bachman, Michelle Bachman. She has become pretty much the consensus second choice for many <laughs> GOP voters, right behind please anyone but these clowns. <laughs> Uh, Ms. Bachman has risen in part by asserting things that are very provocative, but not true. <laughs> Such as the one that the Founding Fathers all crusaded against slavery, and that the Obama administration would be abandoning the dollar, 
in the favor of some leftist currency. She, she asserted that, so in Obama's America, a copy of the Communist Manifesto would cost you four quinoa and an acai berry. <laughs> uh, in fact, Michelle Bachman, true to her form, uh, launched her presidential campaign with a little error. She went to Waterloo, Iowa, her hometown, and said she had the spirit of the town's most famous resident, John Wayne. <laughs> she was close. <laughs> Waterloo's most famous resident was, in fact, John Wayne Gacy. the infamous serial killer. <laughs> Who can forget that moment in The Quiet Man where he puts on that clown makeup? Oh, it's terrifying. <laughs> the great thing about Michelle Bachman is that she takes, she doesn't back down. She doubles down on this stuff. She does. She yeah. will not back down, like, ever. When she said that John Quincy Adams you know, was a founding father and, you know, and he was like, Nine when the revolution started. <laughs> he, was a, he was a founding little boy. Was it a founding tween? Is what yeah, he was. Yeah. He was a founding tween. Another reason that people like Michelle Bachman's chances is they consider her uh, a more viable alternative to Sarah Palin. They hear mm -hmm. that comparison a lot. So, mm -hmm. to using the classic Gilligan's Island analogy. Ah. Ah. No, listen, listen, Bachman would of course be Marianne uh -huh. to Palin's Gilligan. <laughs> <laughs> Right back and you'll hear a tale, a tale of a fateful trip That started from this tropic port aboard this tiny ship The mate was a mighty sailing man, the skipper brave and sure Five passengers set sail that day for a three-hour tour A three-hour tour The ships are ground on the shore of this uncharted desert isle With Gilligan, the skipper too President Obama is going to uh, <laughs> run for re-election, of course, and he's got a problem of intensity, I told you. 84% uh, of conservatives strongly disapprove, 64% of liberals strongly approve. That's a 20-point uh, difference that's gigantic and, and it's uh, very harmful to him. So he's giving a speech, he recognizes it, and he says... Quote, it's not as cool to be an Obama supporter as it was in 2008 with the posters and all of that stuff. So he recognizes it, right? Um, so what are you going to do about it? And do you understand why that happened? That, that happened because you said you were going to change the system and then you didn't change it at all. You say, oh, well, you know, I did, you know, I worked within the system to get you a tiny bit of change. That's not what we asked for. That's not what you promised. All right, he continues. Ah, uh, big quote, big changes don't happen overnight. Come on, come on, give me a break. What did you want? You want a change? You want a big change? No, no, no. Tiny little bit of change. Get me reelected, and I'll give you a tiny little bit more. I'll give you another taste, okay? Now, I tell you this not just to, you know, get on the president for not doing enough, which I don't think he has, and everybody's like, when you say that, they're like, oh, you're, you're so demanding. No, I'm not. I wanted him to try. I wasn't asking for that much. I wanted him to say, hey, you know what, can we try to remove the influence of money from politics? He didn't do that at all. What bill did he propose on that? What did he fight for in campaign finance reform? Nothing. System is exactly as it is, but he worked around the edges. Anyway, but that's not why I bring it up in this context. 
I bring it up in this context because a winning campaign slogan is not big changes don't happen overnight. I'm only giving you one of the quotes here. Throughout the speech, there was like four different quotes where the president's like, well, come on, guys, it's slow, it's tough. What do you want me to do? I didn't get much done, but what can I do? You're going to win a campaign that way? You're not going to win a campaign like that. Look, the way you win the campaign is you attack your opponent. You go after the other guy. So you have big plans. You say, oh, I'm coming. So if I was President Obama, even if I had the same exact record, here's what I'd say. I'm coming, okay? And we're going to go after the Republicans on creating jobs. I'm going to... I have a proposal to create three million new jobs. Some of my bitch Republicans won't let me do it. I'm coming for that, okay? And I would say tax cuts, here's what I got for you. Tax increases for the uh, top 1%, top 2%. And I'm absolutely insistent on it right now, not later, not if you reelect me. Right now, I gotta have it. Some of my bitch Republicans are in the way. They better get out of the way because I'm coming, okay? You do this on every issue. Medicare, they want to take away your Medicare. Here's how much of Medicare I'm going to cut. None of it. None of it. I'm coming. Okay? That's how you win politics. You project strength. You don't go into a rally and say, change is so slow. I'm so sorry. I had to agree with the Republicans again. Oh, by the way, in a couple of weeks, when we announce our big spending cuts, we'll agree with the Republicans 90% of the way. I'm so sorry. I did so little. I'm so sorry. You ain't going to win that way. You're going to lose that way. Look at Michelle Obama. She says, look, I understand your frustration. She says to the crowd. And look, we, I have those conversations with Barack Obama. At least somebody's having it with him. Great. I'm happy to hear that. Then she says, quote, Barack always reminds me that we're playing a long game here. He reminds me that change is slow. I got it. I got it. You're not going to do change. It's a lot of excuses for not doing any change. It's a terrible political strategy. Much more importantly, it's terrible policy. Look, George Bush and Dick Cheney got a lot of things done. Now, those were all disastrous for the country, but they made it a country that we had no business invading, and they shoved it down our throats. They made up whatever they had to, and they got it done, right? They passed gigantic, record-breaking tax cuts. Okay, did it make sense? No. Did they even win the vote initially? No. But they insisted, and they pushed, and they finally got 50 senators, and they got Dick Cheney to break the tie, and they did it. They imposed their will upon the country, and they got things done you couldn't have imagined, and they gutted our regulatory laws and our protections, etc. But they got it done, right? They didn't say, when did you ever hear Dick Cheney say, oh no, but change is slow, I can't, I can't attack Iraq, can I attack a smaller country? Can we go for Luxembourg? No, he said, I'm coming. Now, I didn't like his policies, and the policies were terrible for the country, but at least he had the strength to push his ideas through. On our side, we have the right policies and the wrong guy. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong, progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com.
I had won the vote, folks, but I would not officially have a super PAC until my papers for the super PAC were filed with the secretary of the FEC. No super PAC yet. Still no super PAC. No, oh, it's just a handshake. No super PAC yet. Paperwork still to come. And... Thank you very much. Newly in Super PAC, it was time to head outside and address the Colbert Super Nation. Hello, nation. I am here to represent your voice, so please quiet down so we can all hear what you have to say with my mouth. Fellow Americans, ladies and gentlemen, supporters, friends, and federal employees with extremely generous lunch break policies, 60 days ago today, on this very spot, a young man petitioned the FEC for permission to form a super PAC to raise unlimited monies and use them monies to determine the winners of the 2012 elections. Can anyone tell me? Can anyone tell me who that young man was? It was me. Now, some people have cynically asked, is this some kind of joke? Well, I, for one, don't think that participating in democracy is a joke. I don't think that wanting to know what the rules are is a joke. But I do have one federal election law joke, if you'd like to hear it. Knock, knock. Unlimited union and corporate campaign contributions. That's the thing, I don't think I should have to tell you. Of course, there will be others who say, Stephen Colbert, what will you do with that unrestricted super PAC money? To which I say, I don't know. Give it to me and let's find out. Because I don't know about you, but I do not accept limits on my free speech. I don't know about you, but I do not accept the status quo. But I do accept Visa, MasterCard, and American Express. Thank you. God bless America. And for any atheists out there, Gazoontite, the United States of America, we did it! I am a super pack, and so can you! Then, like Washington crossing the Delaware to ask it for money, I waded into the crowd with a credit card swiper attached to my iPad. Thank you. Just throw it out. Bowl it up and throw it at me. Thank you. Well, folks, I want to thank all those people who swiped their cards in the right slot today. And for those of you who swiped it in the wrong slot, thank you even more.
Now, you too, you nation out there, can be part of history by logging on to my brand new website, ColbertSuperPack.com. We weren't allowed to keep the email addresses we collected from ColbertPack.com because they remain the property of Viacom.com. So sign up again, but I assure you that those 130,000 emails we collected last time will not go to waste. They're being sold to a Chinese cybercrime syndicate. <laughs> and folks, you'll be getting an email reminding you to switch to Colbert Super Pack right now. <laughs> and when you sign up, you will get this personal form letter of thanks from me. It is suitable for printing out and framing if you have a frame. Please donate, nation, because you can't spell donation without nation and dough. We are going to fix America. Together, we will build a better tomorrow tomorrow. Literally. I can't build it today. I'm just so tired. Over this past weekend, one of the most high-profile Republican governors in the entire country vanished. It happened again. Uh, he disappeared, gone, just out of the blue. Nobody in his state knew exactly where he was. Uh, this was the publicly available schedule for Republican Governor Rick Scott of Florida. Every weekend he's been governor up to this past weekend included some sort of event, even if it was just church services listed on Sunday. But then this past weekend, that's it. Nothing. Nothing on the calendar for Saturday. Nothing on the calendar for Sunday. Not even church. Given the very recent history of Republican governors just up and disappearing from their states, only to return with lots of explaining to do, political reporters in Florida started getting curious. They started asking questions about where Rick Scott went. And when they asked Rick Scott's office about the governor's whereabouts, they were told, frankly, that they should consult the official schedule. The official schedule, which again, showed this, showed absolutely nothing. So after days of wondering what the heck was going on with their disappearing governor, today, Florida residents and those Florida political reporters finally got some answers. They finally got the truth about where their governor was this past weekend, what he was doing that mysteriously was listed as blank on his public schedule. Turns out Rick Scott, the new Republican governor of Florida, was at a secret invitation-only retreat outside of Vail, Colorado, uh, put on by the billionaire Koch brothers. Oh. After declaring a state of emergency in Florida due to wildfires, Governor Rick Scott hopped on a plane. He went to Colorado. He addressed the secret Koch brothers retreat and apparently hoped that nobody back home would notice. Unfortunately for Governor Scott, they did notice. At the same time that Rick Scott went missing in Florida, though, another Republican governor went missing, too. 
Republican Governor Rick Perry of Texas. In order to figure out where Rick Perry had gone, the local press in Texas resorted to, I'm not kidding, tracking the tail number of a private plane that Rick Perry was sometimes known to use. The private plane of one of Rick Perry's major campaign donors. And it turns out that Rick Perry, too, had been meeting with the Koch brothers at their private retreat outside of Vail, Colorado. Rick Perry and Rick Scott we're not the only Republican governors that were attending this super-secret Koch Brothers confab this past weekend. Also on the list, Republican Governor Bob McDonnell of Virginia. In fact, Bob McDonnell is part of the reason that anybody knew this secret retreat was happening in the first place, because he, unlike Rick Scott at least, put the meeting on his schedule. Just as a refresher, the Koch brothers are the super-rich, super-politically-active heirs to the Koch industry's fortune. Koch Industries is an oil and chemical conglomerate that Charles and David Koch inherited from dear old dad. Koch Industries is the second largest privately held company in the entire country. Charles and David Koch have lobbied aggressively for years and years to kill regulations on the industry that has made them so rich, to kill regulations on the oil and chemical industry. The way they've gotten politically active is by doing things like funding efforts to defeat climate science and by bankrolling the opposition to clean energy in the United States. Koch Industries has reportedly spent more than $48 million on that effort just since 1997. And it's not just funding opposition to clean energy and energy regulation. It's also key, and this is key, that they've been putting the politicians in place that they want to push through their agenda. Nearly all of the 31 Republicans on the House Energy Committee can cite Koch Industries as one of their top corporate donors. Nine of the 12 new members of that panel signed a pledge by the Koch Brothers Group Americans for Prosperity to oppose any efforts by the Obama administration to regulate greenhouse gases at all. That is how the Koch brothers operate in our politics. That's why the Koch brothers, frankly, have become this year's liberal boogeyman, right? That, that's, that's why even people who aren't liberals tend to think of guys like this as boogeymen. People flexing this much political muscle for those types of political aims, for their own corporate self-interest, is sort of hard to market to the public at large. It is sort of a hard sell. So even as individual Republican politicians want as much of that Koch brothers money as they can get their hands on, and they're happy to fly to Vail, Colorado to go meet with them and get their marching orders and try to lock up some of that money, frankly, even while you are doing that, you try to keep that private plane tail number out of the Austin American statesman. You try to keep that sort of trip off your public schedule. But as unpop unpopular as associating with the Koch brothers might be for these individual politicians, as embarrassing as it may be to get outed secretly traveling to a Koch brothers summit in Colorado over a weekend when you want everybody to just not wonder where you are, the Koch brothers have been making it worth these politicians' while and how, both through, through cold, hard cash and, and through support for policy positions, certain policy positions once they are in office. Many of these Republican governors have the Koch brothers to thank, in part, for winning their races. In 2010 alone, Koch Industries and its employees and subsidiaries spent $1.2 million getting Republican governors elected across the country. Koch Industries was the single largest source of corporate contributions for Republican Governor Scott Walker of Wisconsin. And he wasn't even the governor they gave the most to. They gave more money to Rick Perry of Texas than they gave to Scott Walker. They also supported, surprise, surprise, Republican Governor John Kasich in Ohio. If you are a Republican politician associating yourself with the Koch brothers, going to their secret meetings in Vail, you know what helps you get elected? 
But it doesn't just buy you support for your campaign. It also buys you support for your specific policies as well, even policies that are likely to be really unpopular. If you are Scott Walker in Wisconsin, for example, Coke-affiliated groups will hold rallies at your state capitol to support your pro-corporate union stripping thing. They will even ship Sarah Palin in for Alaska, from Alaska to speak at the event. If you are John Kasich of Ohio, don't worry, they will help bankroll your union stripping thing as well. Governor Kasich's big union stripping bill is facing the possibility of being overturned by Ohio voters in November. Who's got John Kasich's back in defending that bill? Who's helping to finance the union busting side of that fight? The Koch brothers, Americans for Prosperity, of course. Koch brothers have the backs of all of these Republican governors in all of these states who are taking up all of these unpopular fights. And they are helping those governors succeed in the next election, not just by trying to persuade people of the rightness of their cause, but by also simply just reducing the number of likely Democratic voters that might make it to the polls and who are allowed to vote. All over the country, in almost every red state, we are seeing these Koch industry-supported governors changing the voting rules. There's no outcry in these states to change the voting rules, but these Republican governors are doing it anyway. They are making it harder to register to vote and harder to actually vote. Scott Walker already signed his big voter ID bill into law in Wisconsin back in May. Republican Governor Paul LePage in Maine is right now trying to eliminate his state's same-day voter registration law. He signed a law into effect that would do that. Voters in Maine have signaled that they will try to exercise their people's veto over that. They will try to recall what Governor LePage just did. Republican Governor John Kasich of Ohio is now waiting on a tough new voter ID law that even the Republican Secretary of State in Ohio has come out against, saying it will result in real legally cast ballots not being counted and of real legally registered voters not being allowed to vote. All of these Republican voters, all of these Republican governors are pushing all of these laws that will make it dramatically harder to register to vote and to actually vote. Dramatic changes to voter registration rules and voting rules that are expected to reduce the number of Democratic-leaning voters in constituencies like minorities and the poor and disabled people and young people. In addition to changing the voting rules to decrease the number of Democrats who will be expected to vote, these Koch Industries supporter governors are also targeting the single biggest organizational asset that Democrats have in the states. Today, New Jersey's Republican Governor Chris Christie signed into law his big union stripping bill, which is the landmark achievement of his time in office so far. Tomorrow, Scott Walker's big union stripping law will officially go into effect in Wisconsin after months and months of legal struggles and struggles in the streets. John Kasich in Ohio has already signed his new union stripping law into effect. In terms of winning elections, in terms of dismantling Democratic hopes of winning elections, killing the unions is really how you do it. It's the best organizational structure that Democrats have had. Organizational structure in the way that they could turn on their get-out-the-vote operation was once a huge advantage of the National Republican Party. That advantage has now sort of disappeared. We saw that firsthand in Nevada during the last election when we went there to cover the Harry Reid-Sharon Angle Senate race last year. And we spoke with political reporter John Ralston. What's the Sharon Angle turnout infrastructure? If the Republican Party isn't all that here, what is she, what is she relying on for, for turning out votes? Carl Rove. Uh, American Crossroads. Uh, announced a few weeks ago that, that they were going to dump a bunch of money into Nevada to help them uh, with, with get out the vote. Uh, and so they, they have poured some money, uh, my understanding is, into the Nevada Republican Party, which essentially is a shell corporation. There's nothing there. And that they are then using that to mail 
to people, uh, negative read mailers, and probably for phone banking. Uh, and so, uh, how much have they've actually come through? I don't, you know, we don't know on the reports how, yet. Can you really fly in and get out the vote infrastructure? Doesn't it have to be based here? Doesn't it have to be organic? I, I think not only does it have to be organic to be to be effective, but it can't be done in just a few weeks. Because the Republican Party's get out the vote capacity has been allowed to atrophy in recent years, it is now being supplemented by these private and secretly funded outside groups like the one run by Karl Rove. Last year's elections were really the first elections where they tried to pull that off. Nevada is one of the places where it seems like they just didn't get it together fast enough to do it. But it looks like they're not going to make that same mistake this time around. Roll Call newspaper reporting today that another one of these types of groups, Freedom Works, is now beginning to transition itself from an activist organization to a get-out-the-vote organization. As it is, get-out-the-vote is traditionally done by the political parties, but that, of course, involves abiding by those pesky federal restrictions on how much parties can take in from groups and individuals for those activities. Take that responsibility out of the hands of the parties and give it to someone like Freedom Works and... Hey, there go all the restrictions. As the Obama re-election campaign really gets into gear now, one of the things that I think Democrats are often sort of smug and satisfied about is the superiority of their own party structure, their own organizational structure, their own ability to reach their own voters and encourage them to go out and vote when it counts. Well, Democrats have been building up that structural capacity, and the Obama administration was very good at it in 2008, the Obama organization, I should say. Republicans... In terms of the Republican Party, they have been letting their organizational efforts languish, as seen in Nevada, where the Democratic effort was very well organized and the Republican effort was not. And therefore, even though all the polls showed Sharon Engel winning that race, when it came to Election Day, the Democrats actually came out on top. But we now know that Republicans have been letting that capacity atrophy within the party while instead planning on it being done by outside groups by being done by being done by by Carl Rove's groups or or Freedom Works or the Koch brothers Americans for Prosperity that stuff that organizational capacity will now be handled through means that can be 100% corporate funded to an unlimited degree if Freedom Works is now going to be doing the get out the vote efforts for Republican candidates who are the donors to Freedom Works really who are their donors you don't know i don't know they don't have to tell us if China or Brazil decides that they like one of the Republican presidential contenders this year and they would prefer that person to Barack Obama, what's to stop China or Brazil from giving a million bucks to Freedom Works to go get out the vote, to go do organizational work for that candidate? What's to stop them from giving a million dollar donation or a $10 million donation or a $10 billion donation? Literally, what is to stop China from writing a $10 billion check to elect some favored Republican candidate in the next election? to elect some favored Republican candidate, the next president of the United States. What's to stop that now? The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. 
By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. Call me naive, but my expectation is that leaders are going to lead. Look, I didn't love that press conference today. I told you about it in the first segment. But, and if you watch this show on a regular basis, you know I'm pretty tough on the president from time to time. But it's not because I don't like the guy. I don't know if you're supposed to say this on television, but I voted for him. If you watched the Young Turks during the 2008 election, you would have known very clearly that I was on Obama's side, not only during the general election, but during the primary fight against Hillary Clinton as well. I'm a progressive. As you can tell, I don't hide that one bit. Look, this segment is called the aggressive progressive. That's what I am. And that's why I thought a Republican president in 08 would have been a disaster. So I find it curious sometimes that people accuse me of supporting Republicans now, which I'm amazed by. Look, I get a lot of emails, tweets, et cetera, to that effect. Now, of course, I also get support from the audience when I go after Democrats for not being tough enough against the Republicans, and God bless your heart for that support. But the detractors keep saying the same thing. If you don't support President Obama completely, then a Republican will win the presidency. Well, I've got two responses that I've been dying to share with you guys to that. First, I'm sorry, but obviously I'm not going to lie to you. If President Obama is doing the wrong thing, I'm not going to tell you that he's doing the right thing so I can, quote, support him. That makes no sense. And if he's not being progressive, I'm not going to tell you that he is because that would be untrue. Now, I can give you dozens of examples, but let me give you one. Continuing George Bush's warrantless wiretapping program is simply not progressive. It's not within miles of progressive. As a former constitutional law professor, he should be embarrassed of that decision. That pro program basically destroys the Fourth Amendment. So for my critics, I, I literally don't know what to tell you about that. What, what should I tell you that warrantless wiretapping was terrible under Bush, but fantastic under Obama? Look, I desperately want the president to fight for us. And by us, I don't just mean progressives, I mean the middle class. The rich and the powerful have plenty of representation in Washington. He is supposed to represent the rest of us. So when I see him give in over and over again to the Republicans, whose only priority is to help the top tax bracket and giant corporations, it kills me. Like when he gave in, ta when he gave in on the tax cuts for the rich again in December, he said it wasn't the right time to take on the Republicans, but they tell us it's always not the right time. I mean, not just here on TV, but when I'm at home, I keep screaming at my TV, as I'm sure a lot of you do. Will you please fight? But there's also a second reason why I'm tough on the president, because I don't want him to lose. As you can tell, I'm not thrilled with his policies so far, and I tell you that as honestly as I can. But I know that a Republican candidate would be far, far worse. Look, almost the entire Republican Party is a wholly owned subsidiary of corporate America. They don't have our best interests in mind. But if you go into an election with a Republican meekly, they will rip your face off politically. We need a fighter because fighters win. In my entire experience of covering politics, and I've been doing this professionally for the last 16 years, I have never seen meekness work as a winning political strategy. 
Bush was a disaster for the country, but he won two elections. I know, kind of. By taking, but the way he did it is he took a stand, and, and he didn't budge off of his positions. Now, you might think it's bad policy, but it's almost indisputably good politics. People want strong leaders. If President Obama goes into this election saying, I agree with the Republicans on tax cuts, but not quite as much. I agree with the Republicans on cutting Medicare, but not quite as much. I agree with the Republicans on war, but not quite as much. I'm afraid he's going to lose, and we're going to get stuck with another Republican corporate robot. I'm not tough on Obama because I want him to fail. I'm tough on him because I'm afraid he's on the wrong road. A good friend pulls someone out of a bar fight, not because he doesn't like him, but because he wants to help him. A good friend also doesn't shy away from telling his buddy that he's not going to get that girl or get that promotion if he isn't assertive. Look, it's painful to say, but you do it because you genuinely think it might help. So Mr. President, please stop agreeing with the Republicans and start fighting them. Be an assertive fighter for the American people. It's good for us, but it's also good for you. Fight hard and you will win on policy, but you will also win the election. But if you don't, I've seen this movie before, when Democrats like John Kerry didn't fight back hard enough. And that movie does not end well. Thanks for listening, everyone. I have a special treat for you today. Uh, during Netroots Nation in Minneapolis just a couple of weekends ago, uh, Sam Cedar from the Majority Report, who you should be familiar with, conducted many, many interviews with all sorts of people uh, during his time there. And myself and David Pakman were two of those people who were interviewed by him. And since he just published that interview for his show and for his audience, I thought that I would replay it here for you as well. And here's that interview. Okay, we are in uh, Minnesota, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Netroots Nation 2011. Uh, I am um, I am hungover now. I don't know if I'm hungover at the time that you hear this, uh, folks, but uh, it's quite possible I may never recover from uh, this weekend here. But I am also fortunate enough to uh, have here at the Majority Report slash Ring of Fire booth uh, two, uh, two fellow, well, one fellow podcaster and one fellow radio host, uh, Jay Tomlinson of Tom, Tomlinson, uh, Tomlinson, Tomlinson, just like it's spelled. Yes, I know. No one gets it right though. Like right. the country singer of best of the left, uh, where you can get the, the podcast bestleft.com, right? That is right. And, uh, David Pakman of the David Pakman show. My guess is David Pakman show.com. DavidPackman.com. DavidPackman.com. You may want to get <laughs> DavidPackmanShow.com. I even before, got it wrong. Before yeah. I go and register it and forward <laughs> it to the majority report. I'll do that. So, uh, all right, guys, I, I, I'm, it's, I'm interested to talk to you guys. Both get a sense of, of both of what you're doing. But, David, um, uh, tell me just a little bit about uh, when you're sh- how many times a week you do your show, how you got into it. You're a fairly young guy. 
Yeah, it's twice a week. I started when I was in undergrad in college on a community radio station. The show was terrible. I was reading news for like an hour and really not even doing that good of a job of it. Eventually, though, I got a producer and I got a little bit better at reading news. And then I stopped just reading news and started giving my opinion. And now we're doing TV and radio simultaneously. I have about 130 affiliates. And what kind of will you do TV on? Um, do you t- TV on free speech TV? On or? free speech TV, which is Direct TV and Dish, and then also on about 65 public access TV stations. Fantastic. And uh, Jay, uh, you still use this old technology of just podcasting? I know, right? Well, it's yeah. the it's the it's the new wave. Tell people about your podcast because. Um, uh, you know, I think uh, regular listeners will have heard your, your promo, but sure. uh, tell us about it. So the, the idea is that I listen to unhealthy amounts of uh, liberal media. I, I pull out all the best parts and create themed episodes using all of those bits and try to create episodes that are worth more than the sum of their parts. Right. And then uh, at what point do you get sued? I, well, it, 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 it hasn't happened yet, and I've, I've had my fingers crossed for five years. So. Right. I know. That's. I mean, I think... You know, from uh, I mean, at one point I think you know when I, I started doing this, you asked me uh, if you could pull it, or and then I said, of course. But it's a, uh, it's uh, it's from my perspective, it's a great way for me to get a broader audience. That's uh, what I always yeah. hoped people would think, and I think that's true. I mean, I think yeah. like you'd have to, uh, but it's it's very enjoyable to hear the different uh, different takes on stuff, and uh, I like it because it keeps me without having to, frankly. With all due respect, listen to other people's shows. I can actually just listen to the highlights of that week. I mean, right. do you, David? Do you find that? I mean, do you? Can you really? Do you consume less now that you do this than you did before you did it? Definitely. Or I think I just get better at very quickly looking over a whole bunch of stuff. And I also depend on my audience, which is incredibly racist and anti-Semitic in great part, to tell me about stuff that I should be aware of, that they like, that then I can criticize on my show. Wait a second. So, <laughs> you, you, so you're saying that your audience is, maju- is, is sort of predominantly racist <laughs> and anti-Semite? The loud ones are. Not predominantly. But, you know, when I have on, like, Glenn Miller, and the first question for me to him is, who's a bigger problem, blacks or Jews? And he tells me, because I'm Jewish, the question in itself is biased. His fans come out of the woodwork. Wait, and email so who's me. Glenn Miller? Glenn Miller is this perpetual Senate candidate from Missouri who always runs. His whole thing is basically, whatever the issues are, the problem is Jews. And second to that, black I'm not. People. You know, I gotta say, you don't uh, completely disagree. I am, I am not unsympathetic <laughs> to that view. Uh, certainly, I know that in my life, most of the things that are wrong are because of Jews. I could blame on Jews, um, be, it, be it my family members or my friends. Um, I guess my wife is not Jewish. I would say you guess. It, you, well, my uh, <laughs> let me put it this way. I would say that I am. Uh, I would have to blame either Jews or Jews and Buddhists. Okay. And then that would cover just about everyone in my life who's making my life difficult. That so anyway, those are like the loudest people that I always seem to hear from. So basically anything bad that happens on my show, anything I might, sometimes I might slip up and give a fact that's not completely accurate. You can count on 10 to 20 people at least being convinced and telling me it's because I'm Jewish that I made that mistake. I don't get, I, you know, that's, that's, uh, what, no, do you think it is because you've actually, by having this guy on, you, you actually have developed a 
following amongst anti-Semites? I don't know what it is. Jay might be able to give a better sense because he has the perspective of all, everything that's going on in progressive media. I mean, is there something happening on my show that lends itself more to anti-Semites emailing me? You have anti-Semites on your show. Oh, that's what it is. Okay. Yeah, but why would that necessarily mean that you're getting like a, you have the same anti-Semitic audience? Well, well, I mean, because he posts everything to YouTube and those clips get posted to the anti-Semites oh, websites. Right. Okay, which then, we won't name. Well, no, but I mean, I wouldn't. Why know what are you they afraid are. of like? Don't want to give too much promotional reach to the anti-Semites. That's well, it. Yes. Well, well the, the, I mean, the white man's it's, gotten a, a, enough promotion over. Let the me years. let me just say this: if there's a single member of the Majority Report, I'm a Majority Report member, who uh, stops giving money to me to fund these anti-Semitic sites, I'm going to be very angry. <laughs> That's gonna, fair. I'm going to be very angry. Um, <laughs> Sam, sorry. Just wanted to know, I love your show. Had to cancel my membership because I've started to listen to some really great uh, white power. Uh, What's legitimately white power podcast, and I can't afford both. So. What's the, have you gotten weird reasons for people who cancel memberships? I have like two or three in my mind that are really bizarre. Well, I want to hear them. The, the, the most bizarre one is because they, someone thought that my producer, who says a lot of stuff he doesn't mean, that he doesn't understand, that he just doesn't even remember saying the next day, uh, she thought that he, he had a problem with nurses. And that it warranted a cancellation, apparently. And, this, and this was, let me tell you, this was a good member. This was like a high level. I was catering to this person very, very closely. And then, you know, Lewis goes out. Well, what do you mean, makes, doing? Wait, so you mean catering? Like you're doing like, just very yes, good. folks, I know, one more show about nurses, but please. No, no, no. Uh, I, would I just re- like make sure to respond to her emails <laughs> right. and any suggestions, as heinous as they may have been, I pretend like I was taking them into consideration. I never that do that. What, yeah. the, the, what was the, I was what, working what hard to keep her. suggestions? <laughs> For example, do a whole show about some bridge in, in Minneapolis, for example, that the Republicans are trying to take down because they don't agree with like the steel that it's made out of was Union steel or something. I'm like, it's not really worth a show. No. Right. That's an ex- that's a lot. That's you don't want to draw that out. What were the other reasons? Uh, I, you know, that, that's really the one that sticks out a nurse thing. And there was another one where somebody thought, again, it's my producer. I think the, the, we're seeing a trend here. What it is. Someone thought my producer was anti-Hispanic. And then I had to explain, like, I'm from Argentina. You know, t- it doesn't make sense. But on the census, I put that I'm Hispanic. And I was able to coax that one back. <laughs> <laughs> uh, can I give you a suggestion? New producer. Yeah. <laughs> That's the only thing I would say is like, new producer. Uh, he's growing on Jay though, right? It's uh, well, he's he's grown as a, as a, after as a his, person, I think. After his time. anti best of left rant, right. he's really turned it around. Yeah, right. What does he do? Is he shit on like nurses and the thing is Hispanics he's just, and I kind of he got pulled into participating in the show instead of being a board op unwillingly mm-hmm. so I kind of was accepting that this type of thing might happen once he, he inadvertently implied that he believes the stereotype that Asians are bad drivers and that I didn't lose any members but you can imagine I had a lot of explaining to do and had to have him back off of that position you know which he On entered in a, exactly yeah right yeah <laughs> who knows that's yeah. Well, I mean, I think uh, lesson learned there. I think what you should just do is dock his pay. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right? I mean, every time. Do you actually pay him? Yeah, uh, sometimes. You pay your staff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I ask because no, I do, I do. it's not necessarily the case in my situation. They get paid. Uh, I don't. Evan and uh, Norsey, uh, Evan and Matt, I should say, um, they get paid, but not really. Not in money. <laughs> 
uh, and satisfaction. So uh, now you've been doing this, uh, Jay, uh, for five years, right? A little bit more. I'm about to hit uh, 500 episodes. Wow. Yeah. And so you do two, okay, five, I can't, I don't, uh, I, I can't We don't do need the to math. do math. I don't you started when math. you were three is what it works out to. Yeah. Well, but at the time, did you do it as thinking of it as a business or was it like a hobby? I did it for three years as a hobby. I, I never tried to make any money at it until the economy crashing uh, threatened my real job. What was your real job at the time? I, 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 well, when I when I started the show, I was in California. I was like driving for FedEx, and uh, and then I moved to DC, thinking th- something will just. Work. Oh, so it made sense. I mean, if you're in your car all the day, the, the that that's how I started the show because I was listening to nine hours of politics a day. Anyways, so I was like, I should share this with people. Um, but when I uh, when I made the show into a job, I was doing uh, climate change nonprofit work in DC. And then all the nonprofits got hit hard when the economy crashed. Right. Yeah. I mean, because that climate change, that thing's we, we've taken care of that. Right. 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 That's not. No, that's be... why I I quit because I it, we didn't need to deal with it anymore. Right. I mean, how much once you've I mean, succeeded, there's right. nothing. Right. Okay. And so, uh, so about two or three years ago, you tried to, and I, you know, I want to thank you. You've been very, very helpful uh, oh, for absolutely. for our show. Um, uh, in it, terms of, it, it, it's kind of a selfish altruism, though. You know, I. It, you know, expect to be repaid. Look, you know, these days you don't even get altruism. So if it's a selfish altruism, then great. There uh, you go. That's better than no altruism. And uh, Dave, how long have you been doing your show? Well, it'll be six years in August. Oh, that's but, awesome. But you know, three, four of those years don't really count because I was <laughs> I wasn't doing much. I was just in college. And so, in other words, you would encourage people not to listen to your archives. Yeah, well, you know, it's a member benefit actually. Paid your members producer. get ex- and I say don't listen to anything before like 2008 because it's it's an embarrassment. You don't want to do that? No. Well, you know, someone, I want to ask you this, because uh, someone brought this up. I've done so many interviews now, I can't possibly remember who it was. But the there are those of us who, um, someone told me, I, you know, was talking about uh, that, I think it was Tom Tomorrow, saying that there's certain, you know, he's noticed that there's certain... Um, cartoons that he draws on the, the Daily Coast site that he gets really attacked for by commenters uh, because they are critical of of uh, Obama or the Democrats in some way and he suggests that there is a sort of a generational divide by people who were brought into politics and became more uh, politically, and I'm not suggesting you are but you say 2008 and that just occurred to me but that people who, who sort of came into politics in 2008 have a different perspective on uh, what can be done in Washington and a different bar as to and don't remember what the, the Bush administration was doing and and uh, how Democrats may have let us down in 2003 when it came time for the war, et cetera, et cetera. Do you, do you have, I mean, give me your sense on something like that. In terms of my audience or in terms of me? Either. I mean, any time that I explain what I think is clearly and concisely why I just flat out disagree with the president on whatever issue it might be, people that know that they agree with me on 95% of stuff still send me hate mail, and they just seem to, to in a way, and I hear this from other progressive people. Do you have a lot of audience? I mean, do you, do you, I mean it's, you know, it's sometimes, obviously, emails aren't necessarily indicative of... 
what your audience believes. It's Email, Twitter, and YouTube. You can kind of get a sense, you know, some kind of average of like where people are at. And there's people that just don't care that on 95, you know, on 19 out of 20 issues, we're on the same page. If I say, you know, just if I'm honest with myself and with you, I just don't agree with the president on this. People get angry and they say I'm hurting the greater good or, or hurting the chances for 2012 or whatever it is. And I'm not really there to just talk about how great President Obama is if, I, if that's not what I think. Yeah, so, so I have a story for this. I, I received an email. I get very, very few uh, critical emails because I'm left of Obama, but I got this one great email. I mean, well, great. Uh, but So Bob wrote in, and, uh, and he was complaining that I, you know, he's like, so are you gonna are you gonna give Obama any credit for killing Bin Laden? Or are you just gonna attack him and help the Republicans win like you did all of last year? Thanks for nothing, Bob. And um, and so I wrote back. I was like, well, you know, check out my Bin Laden episodes and let me know what you think. And just very nice about it. And we ended up having an exchange back and forth for a while. Bad and, idea. And his no, it was good. And and his exchange led me to talk about it on the show. And I talked about why I'm left of Obama and try and criticize him from the left is because I, I feel that you know not only policies would be better uh, coming you know further to the left, but his politics would be better. He would be in a stronger position politically if he came to the left. And when when this listener Bob understood why I was doing what I was doing, and he he you know he really got you know another thing that came out of it was he, he said. He asked me, he's like, please see the bigger picture and understand that in the bigger picture of things, you might help elect a Republican. And that set off like sparks in my head. I, and I realized everybody says, please see the bigger picture because I would then tell him, no, no you see the bigger picture because I'm not talking about this election. I'm talking about politics, you know, decades long. And then there are people, you know, still further down the line for me who say, no, 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 Jay, you need to see the bigger picture. We all need to vote for the Green Party because the Democrats are a lost cause. That is why when I get into those type of arguments, I say you need to see the biggest picture. <laughs> exactly. And then you'll always be right. Right. I mean, I think that's I, I mean, I think that's a good point. I mean, because uh, the different people have a sort of a different uh, sense of what is sort of overriding right. and what the time frame and, should be. And so, so and once he understood, it was great. He was like, oh, I'm so glad to, to now understand, like, where you guys are coming from. When you criticize them, like, you're not trying to tear them down. You're trying to build them up. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I, I have received one, exactly one email criticizing me for criticizing the president. Yeah. Uh, and the vast majority are like, I like your show because you're willing to criticize the president. And I think maybe that has to do with that generational divide. Yeah, it could be. Uh, because uh, my audience is all old. Hmm. I, don't know, I don't know if that's... I'm, I'm joking. I, yeah. I know. <laughs> but, uh, guys, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, David Pakman, davidpakman.com. Jay Tomlinson, bestofleft.com. Uh, check out both those podcasts slash shows. And uh, thanks for joining me. Thanks. Absolutely. So that's going to do it for today. I just want to thank the regular cast of characters who make this show possible. Uh, volunteers Mike, Colette, Todd, Joe, Laura, and Emerson all do uh, various amazing jobs uh, helping to keep the show going. And a special thanks to production assistant Lauren, whose work has uh, earned her some sort of designation beyond uh, beyond regular volunteer and, and definitely whose work makes uh, makes her more invaluable with each passing day. So huge thanks to all of them. And, you know, volunteers, like, they come and go. That's the nature of volunteers. 
and whenever that happens, it stresses me out. Like I got to go find a new volunteer and so on. But this crew that I have right now, every one of them has been around for months and months and months and has just been doing an amazing job for way longer than could have ever been reasonably expected. So I just want to put out an extra thanks for being an extra special set of uh, exceptional volunteers uh, in, in that case. And, you know, like I said, when, when a volunteer comes or goes, like it it's, it's, can be stressful. But man, if all of these people decided to uh, to go at the same time, I think I would just end up in the fetal position. I don't even know what I would do. Uh, but of course, beyond volunteers, also have members who support the show financially and help it going in that way. So Anna D signed up for her uh, one of one of the rare communist uh, memberships. Signed up for a full year in advance back on March 10th, and Joan J signed up for a leftist monthly membership on December 5th, and you know, I, I don't read last names, but just to put the, the rumors to rest, it is not Joan Jett. So, you know, I'm not gonna say what her last name is, but um, I just don't want uh, that rumor to, to, to spread prematurely. And now, of course, I wanna mention that everyone can help support the show. The best way is by spreading the word about individual clips that I play on the show. They're all available individually and with uh, buttons that make it incredibly easy to spread among your social networks. Details about that are all at bestoftheleft.com. You can stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, which is another great way to help spread the word to your friends online. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all those details are always listed in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 11 times a month thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor